the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Of course, you've heard all that before. Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us on board for the 15th of January. And uh, my goodness, two weeks already into the brand new year here, are we? Well, we got a good and um, critically important show for you today. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be joined by Peter Rosenberger. He has a radio broadcast on some 200 stations across the country called Hope for the Caregiver. If you are a caregiver, you have an elderly uh, relative or loved one or a spouse at home that maybe is infirm and dealing with whatever it might be, wow, you know what caregiving stress is all about. Did you know that on average, 30% of caregivers ended up dying before the individual that they're caring for? And a lot, they say, is tied into caregiving stress. We're going to talk about how to deal with it, how to recognize it, and how to help people avoid it coming up later on in tonight's program. I want to start, though, with um, news about what seems to be oftentimes an annual gift from the United States Post Office. They roll around and very quietly increase postal rates, and they've done it time and time again, year after year after year. Um, If I tell you I remember when a first-class postage stamp was six cents. That will not only tell me that tell you that I'm I'm very old, <laughs> but that there's been some huge inflation on post, postal rates. Ironically enough though, and we've been seeing these stories on an increasing basis over the last couple of years, ironically enough, the one area where postal rates don't seem to know any inflation at all is package shipping. You ever wonder how it is that the post office won't deliver your mail on a Sunday, but they'll deliver Amazon packages? Well, we've asked Ross Marchand to join us, Director of Policy, the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, to join us and kind of pull back the layers of the the onion here on what exactly is going on between the United States Postal Service, a company like Amazon, and taxpayers that seem to be quietly and unwittingly subsidizing a multi-billion dollar corporation, which in 2018 paid exactly zero income taxes on more than $11.2 billion in net revenue. You actually paid more in taxes than Amazon did. Ross, great to have you with us. What of this? Is this really true that, what, the Postal Service is offering deep discounts because they're so desperate for business? What's going on here? Well, first of all, great. Thanks to be on your show. Um, I There's so much uh, ground to cover when it comes to this issue. Uh, but to put it briefly, yes, absolutely. Um, it is not just Amazon. It is thousands of e-commerce companies that are enjoying these discounts. Whenever we try to figure out what exactly is going on, we're met with this um, a thick doubt of black ink. 
everything is classified. Um, so the post office very clearly does not want us to know about the deals that they're making with leading e-commerce companies. Um, the Postal Service branch of the United States government, it holds the exclusive right to deliver first-class mail in this country, meaning that, you know, you can open up uh, another FedEx or uh, UPS, but you can't open up a company and compete with the post office when it comes to delivering first-class mail. And as a publicly subsidized, government taxpayer dollar subsidized institution, why would there be anything unless they're delivering, I don't know, nuclear waste (laughs) to a processing facility? Why would there be anything that the Postal Service is doing that would not be exposed to the full light of day? Unless, of course, Ross, maybe they've got something to hide. It would seem like a pretty straightforward exercise. If they're cutting a deal with, let's say, Amazon or Walmart or any other e-commerce company, it should be very simple. There's costs on one side of the ledger, on that accounting ledger, and there's revenues on the other side. And if the costs are higher than the revenue, plain and simple, that deal is not good for taxpayers, and it's not good for customers who are paying more and more for postage. Um, But we need to see it to make that judgment for ourselves. And yet, that evades the light of day, and that is deeply concerning. It is. And, you know, in preparation for our conversation here today, Ross, I, I've spent an exhaustive amount of time uh, looking at white papers and newspaper articles and reports. And it seems as if almost consistently anybody and everybody that has tried to get information out of the Postal Service to really ascertain uh, what money is coming in, what going out, how much is being subsidized, if at all. It's it's very difficult to decipher. And, and, and I don't know if this tracks with what your research has, has uncovered, but the best that I can seem to ascertain um, in what is a very complicated methodology that they use to even ascertain postal rates. You think any business would base it on, well, we're not here to make a profit, so if it costs us 10 cents to deliver a letter, we should charge 10 cents to the individual sending the letter. In this case, it seems as if the average charge that Amazon is putting out to most of these um, big corporations that are using the Postal Service to deliver packages, the average charge seems to be about $2 per parcel. But from what I've read... The actual charge, if the Postal Service is actually going to break even, ought to be about three fifty per parcel. Now, even an individual who's been in business not at all can look at that and say, wait a minute, if you're charging two and it's costing you three fifty, you're losing money. Right. And in these sorts of cases, because we don't know the actual information, because the Postal Service is more classified than, uh, some of these reports are more classified than the Mueller report, we do have a trail of breadcrumbs, which is uh, good news for people trying to figure out the truth, although it's definitely bad news for Postal Service finances. And what we've been able to piece together is basically, um, I think the moral of the story is something along the lines of be careful what you assume. Now, the post office is assuming that packages basically have no bearing on cost whatsoever. So let's say it's buying new scanners, or let's say it's buying new trucks. It's assuming that packages are basically not contributing at all to cost, which you and I both know that's ludicrous. They're buying new trucks specifically with packages in mind. That's why they're getting bigger 
and boxier. So for them to turn around and assume that packages have no bearing on cost whatsoever, of course, that leads the way to cooking the books and assuming that packages cost far less than they do and setting prices really, really low. So again, be careful what you assume. Yeah, I guess so. And, you know, the other idea, too, even from the taxpayer perception on all of this. If you order an item from whomever it might be, and then they say, if you don't like it, doesn't fit, whatever, you can send it back at no cost. Recognize there's no such like a free lunch. There's no such thing. So the notion of return items at no cost, no, somebody is picking up that cost. And it seems so far as if the, the big subsidies have gone toward uh, many of these uh, these major multi-billion dollar Carriers, ironically, organizations like Amazon, not to single them out, but here with all the supplementing that taxpayers have done, apparently they've now been able to go out and afford their own trucks. So essentially, they can eventually perhaps cut UPS out of the picture altogether, or USPS rather. Right, and that's the name of the game, and everyone is trying to figure out how to do that. In the meantime, you do have this huge returns problem. Now, look. I'm sure you're in the same sort of situation. I have family and friends, and they're talking to me about returning things three, four, maybe even five times, and it is free for them to return for the vast majority of returns. The customers aren't paying anything. The Postal Service is, though, and, of course, there are tremendous labor and sort of capital costs that go into that return process. This is a huge opportunity for the post office to um, get back into the black and try to recoup some of their losses, but they're not doing it because of these sweetheart deals that, again, uh, we can't even see, but we have good reason to believe that the post office is getting the raw end of the deal. Yeah, and, and sadly, there's supposed to be a, a organization that has the public trust and should be operating uh, within the... the, the, the um Sunshine of daylight, as the saying goes, and that doesn't seem to be the case. Well, we appreciate you uh, kind of pulling back a little bit of the cover on this story, Ross, as much as possible, and, and please continue to do so. Folks can get more information, by the way, on this story at protectingtaxpayers.org. That's protectingtaxpayers.org. And our thanks to March uh, Ross McCharland from the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. 616, let's get you updated here on traffic. We'll swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back. We continue on. Wednesday edition of Lifeline. Pope Francis recently reiterated an important position of the Roman Catholic Church, which, by the way, uh, for all the differences that some Protestants might see between themselves and our um, Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, be mindful of one important thing when it comes to the pro-life movement, and that is that while the entire issue of Roe versus Wade was unfolding in 1973 before the United States Supreme Court, the only unified voice against abortion in America at that time was the Roman Catholic Church. I know some people will perhaps argue with that, but it's the painful truth. Recently, Pope Francis reiterated an important position on this issue of abortion. And he said this, in relationship to selective abortion for the disabled, he called it, and I'm quoting here, an expression of an inhuman eugenics mentality. And if you have any familiarity with 
the work of Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood, the science of eugenics, Nazism in Germany in the 1930s and 40s, you'll understand that um, it was this very concept of the science of eugenics laid out largely for the community by Margaret Sanger and really embraced by um, those who wish to um, promote this notion of the survival of the fittest and the elimination of those that were not considered to be fit for society. Um, and, of course, that led to a major tragedy during World War II. Subsequently, that same tragedy continues in America to this very day. This position by the Pope, a very important one, and one I think that all of us need to take pause to as we, we grapple through as a culture this issue of abortion, even here 47 years after Roe versus Wade decision was made and more than 60 million lives lost since that time. It was in 1973 when the Roe versus Wade decision was handed down. It was just three scant years later in 1976 that my next guest attended the March for Life. God got a hold of his heart, and he's been on the front lines of the pro-life movement ever since. He is Father Frank Provone, and um, has been a key influencer in the pro-life movement. He'll be returning to the San Francisco Bay Area as one of the keynote speakers at the 16th annual Walk for Life West Coast, taking place Saturday, January the 25th in San Francisco. And Father Pavone, good to have you back on the program. Hi, Craig. It's good to be with you again. Uh, let me have you comment, if you would, to to uh, Pope Francis's remarks. You know, uh, there there's always been sort of an escape hatch, so to speak, that has been painted by the pro-choice side of the equation here that says, well, you know, even if we put certain restrictions into abortion, we want to make sure that a woman still retains her right if there is a concern about her health, without defining what that means, or if there is a circumstance where we somehow would determine that a child may not be born perfect, and therefore we would rather eliminate that child as the quote-unquote humane thing to do, though as the Pope pointed out here, that in fact is really the inhumane thing to do. Yes, it goes back to the question, and this is where Roe v. Wade uh, has its, its fundamental error, it goes back to the question of thinking that we have the option to make those decisions in the first place. In other words, who are we to say, oh, well, let's set up the options under which we can kill a child. You know, let's set up the circumstances under which we will allow it. The fundamental problem with, with Roe v. Wade is that it makes people think that the government can allow it. it, it government has far surpassed its authority by, by even trying to authorize a single abortion. So that's, that's problem one, number one. Roe v. Wade, which Americans are going to be speaking out loudly against at the Walk for Life, uh, as at the March for Life in these, in these coming days, it, 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 it's, it's, it established a different form of government, really, than what our founders had in mind. Uh, government doesn't have the authority to veto human rights. There's another part of the answer to that question, too, is, well, what, let's, let's, let's take pause here at the thought that this is somehow going to be a benefit for the woman, for the mother, um, and let's take a little bit better account of the damage abortion does to her. And that, of course, has characterized the walk for life in San Francisco from the beginning, this theme of abortion hurts women. The banner that's carried at the front of the walk says those very words. 
And they're words really that resonate throughout the pro-life movement in every community. In fact, in the heart and mind of every pro-lifer, we're saying, hey, what kills the baby harms the mother, too. And it's amazing how proponents of abortion just gloss over that point, and it's like they give no thought to the health of the very women that they're claiming to be, to be serving. Well, moreover, I've always thought it intellectually dishonest when there is often this insistence that if you strip away every aspect, every argument uh, as to why abortion um, is is inappropriate and they sort of distill it down to, well, ultimately it comes down to one thing. A woman has a right to choose what happens to her body. Okay, well, if we work off of that premise, then, then here's the intellectual dishonesty um, of that premise that I struggle with, Father Pravone, and that is this. Uh, if a woman has a fundamental right to choose what happens to her body, uh, isn't it logical that at least 50% of the children who are aborted in America, if we just base it off of normal birth rates, are women or girls? And if that can't be the case, then how do we argue that a in in a, in a child still in the womb doesn't have the right, even though it's a woman, and yet the one out, the one that's making the decision, does. It, it it seems to again be another minor demonstration of a major inconsistency. It really is, and and you know the thing about it too is that the um, uh, the assertion of bodily autonomy. You know, I always ask them the question: Okay, let's grant for a moment that you have complete bodily autonomy. Of course you don't. I mean, you know, you, 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 can't, you can't stand in the middle of the highway. You can't even stand up on an airplane when it's taxiing, you know. You're breaking federal law. But, but, but if you say, okay, you have complete control over your body, then I always ask them the question, okay, when did that start? When did you start to have autonomy over your body? Isn't it when your body began? And, and if so, then, then what about this other, this other body that's, in, that's being destroyed by the abortion? It's a self-contradictory argument to say you can, you can destroy one body uh, because the other body has bodily autonomy. Uh, and that one has it because everybody has it. Well, it's a self-contradictory argument. Um, but it's also contrary to fact. And, you know, this is where, you know, I, I, like you said before in the introduction, I've been coming to the Walk for Life for, for a very long time, practically since its inception. And this is always a very strong awareness that is nurtured by the, the activities that are going to take place in these coming days. Uh, namely, that um, the, um, uh, the mother, the women, uh, that, are, that are undergoing this, uh, these abortions, they're not doing so because of freedom of choice. They're doing so precisely because they have, feel they have no freedom and no choice. So the slogan about all this autonomy and this freedom, you know, it, it, it's, it's, we can answer it on a, in a philosophical, logical, and moral way, uh, but we can also answer it by pointing out it's just contrary to fact. People don't get up in the morning to go to their abortion appointment with the mindset, oh, I'm exercising my freedom today. No, instead, they're going with, with, with tears in their eyes, grief in their heart, despair in their spirit, and they're saying, oh, this, is, this is the worst day of my life. I'm doing something I know is terribly wrong, but I don't see any other option. And that's why these, these marches and these walks, you know, all these people coming together are so important, because it's saying to the nation, no, you do have other options. All of us here, we're not just here to protest. We're here to reach out our hands to help you find better choices. And, you know, full disclosure here, if you've had, um, particularly in a state like California, where there's been legislation trying to force um, um, pro-life clinics 
to put signs up advising women of the ability to choose abortion as if somehow they weren't aware that that was available to them. But of course, then not insisting the same thing be true of abortion clinics like Planned Parenthood, where there should be signage posted saying abortion isn't your only choice. You you also have an opportunity to choose life, choose to carry the child, keep the child, carry the child, and put the child up for adoption. But yet, ironically, they 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 want choice they want information but only just so far and you know you know what's fueling that you know it, it is an inconsistency because there if they really wanted to serve the good of, of women it would be that that even-handed approach of you know tell the abortion clinics to to, to give present these these women with the options but no what's really fueling it is they're trying to prop up a dying industry. The abortion industry has been collapsing. Uh, we we are are seeing you know abortion facilities close so so rapidly that 25 years ago or so there were three times as many freestanding abortion facilities in the U.S. as there are now. It's a business in rapid decline, and uh, it, when you think about it, things like. Not only the, um, oh, well, let's make sure that the, even these pregnancy centers have to help us do our advertising. Um, and, you know, praise God that, you know, the Supreme Court had something to say about that. And they said this is, this is forced speech, which is the antithesis of free speech. But it's because the abortion industry is desperate. We, we need them to help us do our advertising. And that's the same engine which fuels, for example, this idea of forcing medical students to learn abortion and also forcing you know, religious groups to cover abortion in their health insurance plans or forcing taxpayers to pay for it. It's an industry which is, uh, which is, is in collapse because people are more and more rejecting abortion. Let me ask you a final question. Um... In that relationship, and, and given the fact that you've been on the front lines of the pro-life movement for so many years now, um, we've seen certainly a number of cases that have even gone to um, local, regional courts that have been upheld that have allowed, in many respects, some very important victories in the pro-life arena, even as we continue to dialogue about the prayer, the hope that someday abortion, as we know it, will end in the United States. Given the uh, post-Christian world, or, or maybe more accurately put, uh, Pope Francis recently re- referred to this as the de-Christianized world, which I think is, is far more accurate, is the challenge of making the pro-life movement under those circumstances, in spite of some of the legal victories that we've won, is the challenge, though, of, of, of helping people to really understand how precious life is becoming more difficult in a de-Christianized world? It is more difficult in the sense, in the sense that faith strengthens reason. Uh, the, the faith that we have in Jesus Christ and the, the teachings of His gospel are not contrary to reason. They actually strengthen reason, and of course, they bring us well beyond what human reason can know on its own. But when we come with something like abortion, we can make the case, the pro-life case, very strongly based on human reason alone. Uh, you know, I say to people, "Hey, you might not." I mean, we have we have pro. There's going to be pro-life atheists walking in that in that walk uh, uh, in 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 a number of days. Uh, but but you know, and they say, well, you know, I, I I can't see God. I'm not sure if God is there, but I sure know that that baby is there, and I can see what abortion does to the baby. So you have a strong strong foundation in human reason 
And we're advancing, and in human experience, you know, we have this, I don't know more, uh, women that'll be testifying at sharing their stories at the Walk for Life. Uh, here, the people, uh, the, the, their wounds from abortion speak volumes, and, and that goes a long way, in, in, even in a de-Christianized society. But ultimately, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with, with signs and wonders and with preaching and with miracles and with grace and with testimony to the, to the power of God, must be... Uh, revived must be um, uh, must blanket this nation, and only then will all of those arguments from human reason, which don't go away, but will get strengthened, have their ultimate effect in in bringing protection to these children. And, and ultimately, of course, that is the key to um, setting the captives free, isn't it? Father Frank Pravone will be one of the keynote speakers at the 16th Annual Walk for Life West Coast coming up Saturday, January the 25th at the San Francisco Civic Center Plaza. Now, let me just walk you real through uh, real quickly uh, timing on this. Uh, there's going to be uh, that Silent No More Awareness campaign that Father Pravone just uh, referred to a moment ago. That'll be at 1045 of Saturday morning. And that will, again, be at Civic Center Plaza in the city. And then there will be an info fair that runs from 11 to 12.30 p.m. The main event, which will be a rally at 12.30, followed by the walk at 1.30 p.m. It will make its way from Civic Center Plaza there, Market and Ninth, down toward uh, the Embarcadero. And you can get complete details online by going to Walk for Life WC for West Coast, Walk for Life WC. Dot com. It's the 16th annual Walk for Life West Coast, and one of the exciting keynote speakers once again this year, Father Frank Pravone from Priest for Life. And Father Pravone, we appreciate your time. All right, let's get caught up on some traffic here, shall we? Head over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I read a statistic recently, and for those of you, by the way, welcome back, that are caregivers. You have shown compassion. You want to make sure that um, a parent, a spouse, a loved one in the family um, who is facing uh, perhaps terminal illness, end-of-life issues, perhaps has been diagnosed with a disease or maybe is struggling with um, early onset dementia, whatever the case might be, um, you, you've made the sacrifice to, to care for them in your home, right? We don't want mom or dad in a rest home. We want them to be home with us. Uh, certainly fully appropriate. But as you're in the process of caregiving, and see if, if you're a caregiver, if this doesn't resonate with you, a recent study that determined that irony of ironies, 30% of caregivers, and this is I think particularly uh, perhaps true um, when it's a husband caring for a wife or vice versa. 30% of caregivers actually die first, meaning that the patient, the loved one that they're caring for, succeeds them in life. And when you hear me say that, you say, yeah, I can relate and I know why. The stress is Phenomenal. In fact, there's an actual syndrome related to caregiving that includes a whole list of symptoms. Well, as we um, begin the conversation with Peter Rosenberger, Peter is the host of Hope for the Caregiver, a nationally broadcast uh, radio program. 
uh, dedicated to help providing just that hope, inspiration, uh, a little bit of welcome uh, insight, and uh, hopefully some uh, some tools that will help you manage through the challenges of caring for a loved one. And uh, Peter, welcome to the program. Wow, 30%. I mean, that tells a huge story, doesn't it? Well, it does, but it doesn't, it doesn't really address the sequel of what happens after they die. And what does that mean to their family members, uh, to, the, to those loved ones? And Craig, it's just great to be back with you again. And thank you again for addressing this very critical issue that's going on in our families, in our homes, in our communities all around the country. And um, thank you. Let's uh, let's talk a bit about first uh, some of the challenges here, and and uh, certainly for somebody who's involved in the day to day caregiving, uh, they they know the realities of this. But there's a lot of folks out there that don't really understand. I, I read a story the other day about um, an individual uh, who had been caring for an elderly mother. There was very little support, if anything, offered by the other siblings. In fact, there had even been conversations inside of the family about, well, you know, brother so-and-so, he, he's, he's actually over there taking advantage of mother. He's living rent-free. He's got it made. She's probably buying all of his food. And it wasn't until he suddenly dropped dead of a heart attack in the middle of this process of caring for 80, I'm sorry, 90, 92-year-old mother that the siblings, now having to come in and fill the void, really realized what was going on and the tremendous burden that this man was carrying, having to single-handedly care for their aged and uh, infirm mother. Is, is that story common? Yeah, actually, when I was a young man in my 20s, I was working in a place, and a friend of mine I was at the same company, a uh, different branch, and he was over in the other part of the state, and his wife had early onset of Alzheimer's. And he and I got to be friends. I was a young man as a caregiver for my wife. He was an older man as a caregiver. We both had about the same length of time doing it at the time. Now, I'm in my 34th year caring for my wife now. But I remember him telling me, he said, Peter, one of the is that I will die before her. And sure enough, he had a heart attack a couple of years later and, and died. And she lived on for another 10 years. And that stuck with me, Craig. It really made a huge impression on me of, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do as caregivers and as, as to, to, to address this issue? You cannot, um, you cannot guarantee you're going to outlive your loved one, but you want to live your life in a way that gives you a fighting chance to do it. And this is what I talk about on my show when I go out and speak and my books and everything else is, okay, what does that fighting chance look like? Because this family member you were reading about, these family members, they had to come in and jump in from scratch. They had to learn in one day what this guy had been doing, their brother had been doing, for probably some time at that point. And the learning curve is really steep as a caregiver. I could just say that from vast amounts of experience. And uh, so these are, these are very critical things that just don't get the, the press that a lot of other things do in this country. But these are affecting people around the kitchen table in ways that we just cannot overstate. No, you're right. And I think toward that end, Peter, as well, it's important for, for others in, in the, the family that are not involved in the, the day-to-day minutia of the caregiving to understand that this is not simply a sacrifice of time. 
Um, it's more than that. I mean, in, in many cases, this becomes an all-consuming responsibility uh, dependent upon not only the physical but, but mental well-being of, of the loved one that you're caring for and what those challenges look like. So then suddenly the caregiver is not only facing a loss of personal time, personal space, they're almost entirely robbed of any socialization because they're always engaged in caregiving. Uh, and if it's somebody with whom they have an intimate relationship, this is a, a parent, this is a spouse, uh, oftentimes I guess there can also be the inability to grieve the loss of the quality of a relationship that you once had that you no longer have because of the change in this relationship. And I imagine all of those things together, Peter, really not only physically but emotionally and mentally then puts a tremendous weight, a tremendous burden on the caregiver. It does, and you have to carve out new relationship parameters. Um, I, I'm, this is um, this May. I will went through my uh, the anniversary of going through the first surgery with my wife. That would have been thirty four years, twenty two years old, and we were engaged. We were married later, married later on in the summer, and uh, you know it's been a a um, a difficult journey. She's had eighty surgeries now that I can count. Wow. She was hurt when I met her, uh, but it has just continued to progress, and it's going on today. A hundred doctors are treated in twelve hospitals, seven insurance companies, and now we're over eleven million dollars that I can count. And so, when you have something that's that relentless, it doesn't plateau, but it just keeps just banging on you. You've got to carve out a different way of life, spiritually, emotionally, physically, professionally, financially. I can't. I mean, at twenty-two years old, I didn't have my professional career in place. Let me just state that. Most 22-year-olds don't. So I had to carve out a living while doing this and carve out a career path while doing this and never being more than arm's length away from her on any given day for the most part. And you know, the other, the other irony sure. here is, and, and this will take us to the core of our, of our dialogue today, the other iron, irony is if we, if we say to the average caregiver, look, uh, you know, you, you need to take time for yourself, you need to make sure that you're looking out after your own health and things of this sort, and, and typically the response will be, I would, but I don't have the time. And the whole focus of our dialogue today is to impress upon you how critical it is as we start the new year and have an opportunity for a fresh viewpoint, a fresh or new outlook, that you begin to make the time for these important steps that Peter's going to discuss after the break, because failing to do so can add you to that 30 percentile list quite quickly. Peter Rosenberger is with us today. He is the host of Hope for the Caregiver, a radio broadcast heard nationally on more than 200 radio stations. Information available on the web at hopeforthecaregiver.com. That's hopeforthecaregiver.com. Some important resolutions to strengthen your role, your well-being as a caregiver. As our conversation with Peter Rosenberger continues. Step aside, though, quickly here for an update on traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're talking about the challenges of caregiving and looking at some of the important steps that you should implement in your life starting today to, um, to quite frankly, strengthen you. And, um, you know, as we focus on the issue of caregiving, sometimes it's so much about caregiving to others, and there's little regard for caring for oneself. And yet, 
recognizing the risk that the lack of self-care places on the person that's dependent upon you, pretty severe. 30% wind up dying before the person they're caring for does? Wow. With us is Peter Rosenberger, host of Hope for the Caregiver. Information about his um, national broadcast at hopeforthecaregiver.com. That's hopeforthecaregiver.com. Peter, I referred earlier to this caregiver syndrome, oftentimes marked by exhaustion, anger, frustration, guilt, depression, sleeplessness. The challenges uh, are endless. And uh, as you point out, there are some important steps, some important resolutions that caregivers should take right now if they're going to survive this and, most importantly, be strong enough to be able to continue to provide for the needs of the loved one for whom they're caring. Well, there are, Craig. And one of the biggest ones you can make as a resolution to yourself, we're at that time of year where people make resolutions, and uh, I usually give up my New Year's resolutions for Lent every year, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but go to your doctor. Go to your doctor. Seventy percent of family caregivers do not see their own physician regularly. Now, that is not a good thing. So I'm asking my fellow caregivers, and I do this myself, go see your physician and get get a checkup, get a physical, let them put you on the rack and give you the once over twice. And let that physician know that you're a caregiver dealing with high-stress situations. If that physician seems ambivalent, get another doctor. Because any doctor that doesn't recognize the stress that's on the family caregiver, you don't need in your life. So get a good doctor that was, that's going to be concerned about your blood pressure, your cholesterol. You know, my wife's a double amputee. I can't fight amputation, but I can fight cholesterol. I think sometimes we pick the wrong battles, Craig. We can't fight Alzheimer's, but we can fight high blood pressure. We can't fight autism, but we can fight being a jerk. And this is what I want to help caregivers understand is sometimes we're fighting the wrong battles. We're trying so hard to fix something that is way beyond our skill set. If you're driving right now, listen to Craig and I. Look at your hands. Hopefully they're at 10 and 2 on your wheel. Look at your hands. If you don't see nail prints on your hands, then this is not yours to fix. And that's not your role in this. But if you can start fighting the battles that are yours to do, we can fight our, our responses. We don't have to react to everything. I, I, I'm a... I'm almost a nuclear reactor sometimes, I feel like. I, I get this wrong so much, but I, I know where the road is now that we can learn to respond without reacting. We can learn to treat our bodies better and stop putting things in it that are going to hurt us. Watch what we Make one just one small change. Reach for water instead of a soda. Reach for olive oil instead of butter. You know, just little things. Go to your doctor. Call a trusted friend and let them know that you're hurting. Don't make them drink from the fire hose. Don't get them. Don't let them try to feel like they got to solve the problem. Just let them listen to you, and and get involved in a church in some type of organizational structure that can that can feed your soul so that your your soul is not dying. If your heart is in a good place, you got a fighting chance with everything else. But if we're if we're a train wreck in our own souls, how in the world are we going to make good decisions with our money, with our time, with our with our jobs, with our loved one, or anything? So. If we're not in a good place in our heart, that's where the battle is, I think, for us as caregivers. Once we can deal with that and start getting back on the road to safety, we got we got a good chance of chipping away at these other things. 
You know, we talked earlier about some of the issues in relationship to um, social withdrawal or the isolation that comes from the full-time responsibility as a caregiver. Is it important, in your opinion, and particularly with the ease of, of uh, uh, electronic media today, to take the time to reach out and at least have some kind of emotional support, uh, it, be it whether or not, I don't know, a group of friends from church come and have a brief prayer meeting at your house once a week, or, or just somebody that would be willing to come in and say, hey, let me take a shift for three or four hours. You can go out and do some grocery shopping, run some errands, or or maybe give you a chance to go down to the local Starbucks and just sit there and have a cup of coffee quietly while I'm looking after your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter. Should we be doing things like that? Absolutely. And then more. If you if you got somebody that's got a skilled care situation where you can't just turn that over to just anybody, you know what? That's a good project for a Sunday school class to say, you know what, we're going to contribute to this. You can get a good skilled care RN, you know, 25 bucks an hour, four-hour shift, 100 bucks or whatever. You know, these are wonderful gifts to give to a caregiver. Don't have them just go sit down and get a cup of coffee. Make sure that they have an opportunity to go see their doctor. That is first and foremost. And then maybe there's a support group around somewhere that, that you know, family members of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's patients, or, or you can go to a 12-step recovery program with something like Alamon or something, somewhere where people are wrestling with something they can't control so we can build each other up as we all journey on this journey together. But don't just um, say, well, let me know if there's something I can do to help you. Now, let's be specific. I'm at the grocery store. I'd bring you some milk if you need some. You know, I, <clears throat> somebody cleaning your gutters, you know, I got a guy. And uh, how are your tires doing? Do they need to be rotated and balanced? Or is your oil been changed? Can I go do that for you? Do you, you know, things, things such as that um, are incredibly practical and helpful for caregivers. Really think it through. And, and, but for you caregivers, pick up the phone. Don't just go to a Facebook group. Those are important, and those have their purpose and all that stuff. But you need to have human contact. Pick up the phone and call a trusted friend call somebody, go see a, uh, a counselor, go see a doctor, go to a support group. There are um, a couple that are good friends of mine. The husband was about three years ago diagnosed um, with uh, Lou Gehrig's or ALS. And um, in the ensuing years, of course, uh, the wife has taken on more and more responsibility to the point where she's virtually a 24-7 caregiver now. Um, and she told me recently one of the nicest things anybody ever did for her is a group of ladies from the church got together, they all pitched in, and they bought her a day pass to one of those day spas where she could go and get pampered and, you know, pedicure, manicure, all the things the ladies like to do, and just be able to get out of the house for three or four hours while they looked after her husband, and she got a chance to get a break and be pampered a little bit. She said that was one of the most memorable and nicest things anybody has ever done for her. Amazing how little things like that can make such a big difference. It, it really is, Craig. You can't fix some of these problems like that, particularly you got, like my wife's situation, what she deals with. People can't fix that. But the little things really do mean something to lighten our load. I, I listened to the commercial you had on the break with one of your sponsors. They help lighten the load, you know, and, and that's so important. What can we do to help bear one another's burdens? You know, I can't carry your stuff anymore than you can carry mine. But we can lighten the load a little bit and be with each other on the road. Yea, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, because he is with me. Well, that's the model. Let's just be with each other. 
And I think it's so important to just sort of bring this full circle for the caregiver that's engaged in this responsibility. You've taken on an enormous task. You do it out of love. You do it out of a sense of of obligation. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And sometimes I think we can sort of get so wrapped up in the sense of responsibility that we have that we, we forget to give ourselves permission to take care of ourselves, that we somehow feel guilty, that if for a nanosecond, instead of focusing on the, the individual that we're caring for, we spend a moment caring for ourselves, looking after ourselves, that we think somehow we're cheating them, we're not doing the right thing, uh, we're, we're failing in our responsibility to that loved one that we've made a commitment to. And I think we need to give ourselves the permission to understand uh, that it's like even a person that's a, a pastor in a pulpit, if you don't take time to get re-energized and to be able to fill your gas tank, so to speak, uh, before you go out and try to fill somebody else's, eventually you're going to be running on empty, and before Absolutely. you know it, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna wind up in a worse set of circumstances. Absolutely. Look, healthy caregivers make better caregivers. That's my whole statement of everything I do on my show and for my own life personally. Healthy caregivers make better caregivers. If you want to get more information, we'll point you to HopeForTheCaregiver.com. That's HopeForTheCaregiver.com. Our thanks to Peter Rosenberger, host of Hope for the Caregiver, nationally heard on radio stations across the USA. And uh, we appreciate so much, Peter, you bringing these important New Year's resolutions to us and an important reminder for caregivers to care for themselves as well. Six o'clock from KFAX. Let's get you updated on some traffic ahead of some headline news. And we'll do that right now from the KFAX Traffic Center.